Church. Privileged to be here with you today um, and to look at the Word together. This morning we are in John chapter 11, and this is definitely one of my favorite passages of, of Scripture, and I know for some of you uh, it's probably a favorite as well. Um, but in, in this morning, we're going to see just the awesome power um, of Jesus and uh, what he gave for us. And so let's go to Lord in prayer and we'll jump into John chapter 11. So Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning uh, for your love for us and your goodness to us, God. Thank you for those of us um, here, um, Lord, in in this parking lot and the ability to worship you together and joining them with us on uh, Facebook, others, Lord. And um, we just thank you that we can be one in spirit this morning and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. And thank you so much um, for your word. And um, please teach us by it this morning. And pray. Um, it's in your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. All right, so let's read a few of our verses in John chapter 11. It says, Now a certain man was sick, um, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard he said, This sickness is not to end it, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Um, so let's stop there for a minute at the end of verse 7 and just make sure we have the scene. So here we have, um, you know, this family where you have Mary, uh, Martha, and Lazarus. I would say Mary is a common name um, in the scripture, um, not to be confused with uh, Mary, um, the mother of Jesus. Um, but so we have Mary, Martha, um, and Lazarus, and these siblings that Jesus was was close to, that he was intimately um, connected with, whom he loved and cared for very much. And so um, Jesus receives this word that Lazarus is sick, and he says to his disciples, you know, this isn't going to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by him. Now, many times we have the phrase, you know, Son of Man, the Son of Man may be glorified, but in this case we have, you know, Son of God. And again, Jesus is making that that claim um, to, to deity. And it says, now Jesus, this is what's interesting, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, I think there's times when we say, okay, if, if Jesus, you know, the, the situation, okay, if, you know, Jesus loves 
Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters, like, why does he just immediately get up from where he is and go and and help? Because he has the power to heal. But he has the big picture in mind, just not the one thing. Jesus sees it all, big picture-wise. And because he loved them, they are going to have to suffer more. Now that sounds counterintuitive to us. But for Jesus, he says, you know, because he loves them, they're going to have to endure more tears, more hardship. They're going to have to go through a difficult time. Well, why is that? So that they have an opportunity to see the glory of God in full display. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And his disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? So they're concerned for their physical safety. And Jesus says to them, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So what Jesus is telling them is, hey, we need to be obedient and to do what is what is the right thing to do, and you know, to have courage, to be brave, to to take risks in obedience to God. You know, to take the but now again, this is key here. This isn't a risk that they're just like, oh, I just want to take a risk for the sake of taking the risk. You know, that can be foolish all the time. Just to take a risk for the sake of taking a risk. There's a big difference between that and taking a risk because God has told you to take a risk. Because God has told you to do something that others are going to look at and go, that's probably not the best idea. If you're sitting here objectively and you're saying, you know, you're an outsider and you're looking at it and you're going, okay, so the, the leaders are trying, the religious leaders are trying to stone and kill Jesus and, his, and, you know, and his disciples with him are also in danger. And then the question is, should they go back to a place where they're going to be very near to those religious leaders again, where they're going to be under threat? Should you go or not? Now, again, just on a basic human risk-reward calculation, you go, eh, probably not. I'm going to advise against that. Jesus' own disciples are kind of like, hey, maybe this isn't the best idea, Jesus. But Jesus has a different plan. And he tells them, you know, basically when he's talking about being in in the light as opposed to in the day and as opposed to being in the darkness, he's basically talking about them living in the will of God and not their own. Living according to the vision that God has for them and not just according to the vision that they have for themselves. And then he said to them in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. 
And this is, again, the purpose of Jesus' waiting is so that Lazarus would have time to die. That's why Jesus waited. And again, to us, that seems like, but Jesus, you could have, you know, we've seen you heal the sick already. You could have just healed him. But Jesus here wants to display that he has even greater power than that. And he wants to make it, he wants to give his disciples an experience that is unshakable because he knows what they are going to have to endure moving forward in their lives. So he wants to give them an unshakable experience that they can, a rock that they can go back onto and say, hey, remember when? If you remember when the the Hebrews were freed from their slavery in Egypt and came out and they crossed the Jordan and God had opened it for them so they could walk across and they put 12 stones, one for each tribe, you know, in the middle of the river. And then they made another set of 12 stones on the bank and it was so that they could go back and show the future generations Remember where God brought us from. And it was a rock to remember God's power of deliverance and his love for them. And that for, even for generations of the future, they could look back and say, but I know. And so, you know, because we, we have this possibility that our faith could be shaken through hardship. But if you have these foundational rocks in your life that you can go back and you say, but I know. The first thing that a follower of Jesus has is, you know, if you know, like, at the moment, Jesus saved you. When you went from, you know, death to life and your burdens were released, you can always go back to that moment and say, but I know what Jesus did for me there. And there's going to be other things in life. There'll be other things in life where you're going to have certain experiences that you know the Lord's provision or you know the Lord's goodness or you've known His His presence in prayer. And, you, and then when things get difficult and when there's something that could shake you because you've endured a great loss, you can tell yourself the truth, but I know that I know. And also we have, of course, the Word of God, the Scriptures. We go back to the Scriptures, we go, I know that I know. Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes. That I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Basically, Thomas is like, this is a really bad idea because we're going to go there and the, the leaders are going are to stone Jesus to death and they're probably going to stone us to death too. Let us go with Jesus and die with him. You know, it's interesting because Thomas, he oftentimes gets, you know, seen through one event 
where he doubts, where he's not there when Jesus appeared to the other um, disciples. I don't know what he was doing that particular day, <laughs> but he wasn't he wasn't in the place where they were, and so he didn't have that encounter with the resurrect, you know, with with Jesus being resurrected and to see that the the prince. The, the nail prints in his hands and to see his side and to, to have that experience. And so he's like, the other one saying happy, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to believe until I see it myself. Now, and he gets kind of defined by that one event. But here we see a situation where he's pretty much confident that they're all going to die. And he's willing, he's the one who says, well, you know, basically like, well, we're following Jesus, and so we're, you know, let's all go together with him, and we'll, ha- we'll en- whatever fate he has, we'll endure the same fate. Now, something happened, obviously, later, you know, when Jesus actually went to the cross, he ran away too, like the other ones did. And then he has this period of doubt, and then he has, you know, experience with, with Jesus resurrected, and he is, he is firm. And it's interesting because uh, many believers in in India believe that it was you know Thomas who had gone um, after the, the resurrection and has made his way that direction and and was you know establishing the the church there and, and they trace roots back um, that direction and so that's an interesting. Um, an interesting thing. So Thomas, we need to see him as we see everyone, not based on, you know, one event. You know, we tend to define people sometimes by, you know, one really good thing they did or one really bad thing they did and all the other days kind of seem not to matter, right? But, you know, it's more complicated than that. Uh, From God's perspective and how he views us, And if you are in Jesus, your identity is in Him. And you don't have to worry about so much about the commentary of others. I mean, yes, our reputation is important, but most of all, um, that we are in Christ and that we are known by Him and that He is um, the one who we seek to please in our lives. And so... Verse 17, we'll move forward here. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. And now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world.
again, you know, Martha can also be tended tend to be defined by one event where Jesus is in the house and Mary is, you know, at the feet um, of Jesus, and and Martha is a little bit frustrated with her sister because there's lots of work to do, and Jesus um, sets her straight and says, you know, there's. Uh, you know that that Mary has chosen the better thing to do. You know the, what was really necessary at that time. And again, we can look at Martha just through that one lens, but see her faith here. See the um, see her um, good theology here and her understanding of of things, and and take that um, into consideration. Because she says some things that are true. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's you know, basically saying, why didn't you come earlier? Why didn't you come when you, you know, when we first sent the, the word, the news? And we know Jesus already said that's why he didn't go. Because he, he knew what they would want him to do. Um, and so then, she still has, listen to this, this faith that she has. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now her theology is, is again good here. She knows that there's going to be a resurrection on the last day. But then Jesus switches it a little bit from talking about Lazarus to talking about himself. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And so there's an eternity in us in Jesus that is an eternal life instead of an eternal death. Eternal death is eternal separation from God. Eternal life is eternal life with God. And it is available in for those who believe in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Man, that's great to know this morning if you are a follower of Jesus and you have that confidence that even if you die physically, you're going to live on and on with the Lord. And then Martha's powerful declaration of faith. And I would ask people to consider, do they have this, this, this type of faith in Jesus? that Martha had where she said, yes, Lord, I have believed. You know, she said that basically, she said, I've already made my decision. I have believed that you are the Christ. What does that mean? The Christ, the anointed one, the king. She says, I believe you're the king, the son of God, even he who comes in the world. Like you're the promised one. You're the, you're the one we've been waiting for. The one who fulfills all the, all the prophecy you know, of the prophets of old. She believes. There is no doubt in her conviction of who Jesus is. Folks, do you have this same faith that Martha had? Because if you have that same faith, you are secure and you have eternal life, you believe in Him, He has promised you, He has given you eternal life. But if you do not have that faith that Martha had, Martha had, then you don't have Jesus. You might have an intellectual understanding of Jesus, you might have an idea about Him, you have heard about Him, 
you have an intellect about him, but from the deepest core of who you are, you have to believe as Martha did. You have to be all in on Jesus. And there's an acknowledgement again here. He is the Savior. He is also the King, which means He has all authority. And that's just one of the huge messages, uh, you know, just such a huge message throughout the Gospels is that Jesus has all authority. He has all power. He is, he is all in all. He is, he is the One. And He reigns supreme. And therefore, if He reigns supreme again over, the, over His kingdom, then He also reigns supreme over His followers. And so again, this, what, what Martha is acknowledging is, is that she has a king, and her king is Jesus, and she is subservient to her king. She is at the king's feet. It's not the other way around. You know, people, many people today want to have it where, where, where basically we've made Jesus into one who, you know, we, can, we go to when we're in, in trouble or the one who meets our, our desires, the one who takes care of us, the one who gives us what we want. And to a certain degree, there's some truth there. God does love you. Jesus does love you. Jesus does want to take care of you. If your desires are aligned with the Father's desires, then yes, you know, he, he is going to help you towards that end. But there's a piece here that we cannot afford to misunderstand, and it's that, yes, Jesus came to be our Savior, and yes, He came to give His life as a ransom for many, and yes, He has served us in the ultimate acts of service and demonstrated that He even washed the feet of His disciples. He has shown us of of what He expects of us. But we need to understand that with that doesn't mean that we walk around every day just expecting that for Jesus to wash our feet. But Jesus expects us to wash the feet of others. Jesus expects us to be at His feet in worship. Like, that's our rightful place. Like, Jesus reversed it on us. You know, it should have been the disciples washing the feet of Jesus at the Last Supper, right? But Jesus reversed it because He wanted to show them and to give an example of His life and character and what theirs should be. But Jesus didn't die on the cross, and Jesus isn't king just so that you and I can live our lives here and now like we're the kings. We're to be the servants of the King. And we are to be given over to to Him in service. We have to do that, as Martha also learned, in connection. You know, she was, she had that servant's heart in that other scene where she is serving. That is good, but there's also the necessity of first and foremost to be at the feet of Jesus. Because without that, then if we're not at the feet of Jesus, then the service, the good that we are out to try to do in the world, we end up trying to do that in our own power, in our own strength. And we know what happens when we try to do it in our own power and our own strength. It falls flat. We fall flat on our faces. 
Like, we, we mess it up. We have to be intimately connected with the king and then go and serve. And that's a day-by-day sort of deal. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying, secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for her, for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in a place where Martha met him. And the the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? Stop there for a minute and grab a hold of this scene, this narrative that's so powerful. Because Mary comes, you know, she hears Jesus has called and she goes running. And she has that same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You know, her heart is broken. She is weeping. The others with her are moved at her emotion. And they are weeping. And Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. And he was troubled. And Jesus says, Jesus wept. Now, we know from before, Jesus has already told us what he's going to do. Jesus already said what he's going to do. Jesus knows fully what he's going to do, and he still weeps. And it just it reminds us of what it reads in what we read in, in Hebrews that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us. There's no other God like this, people. There's no other God who who weeps. With his people. Jesus is altogether unique. Jesus wept. Jesus was full of compassion. He knows full well all the pain and trouble that sin has brought into the world when our first parents rebelled in the garden in disobedience and that we as a human race have been on rebelling ever since. We see it in our news every day. We see humans rebelling. You see it on your Facebook feed every day. Humans rebelling against God. We see it even in our own hearts. And Jesus knows all the pain and all the trouble that this causes. And it it causes him to weep as well. The broken heart of Mary. 
the sister of Lazarus causes Jesus to weep. And so when you are going through a difficult time, when you are on your floor and you're on your face and you are weeping and you are crying because you have suffered great loss, understand the heart of Jesus for you. Weep at His feet and let Him be the one to comfort you. And so the Jews were saying, see how He loved Him because you know, they, saw, they knew Jesus had a love for Lazarus as well. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? And we need to be very clear here because many people died in the time of Jesus and there were many relatives, I'm sure, of His disciples who, who died in these times. And Jesus did not raise them all from the dead. He did in this case for, for His purposes and for His reasons. But that doesn't make Him any less caring or any less loving. It doesn't make Him any less real or any less powerful. We do not always get to know the why by why one gets a miracle and the other does not. Maybe one day we'll know that clearly. But here and now we always we don't always get to see that and so don't let that shake your faith. Know the character of Jesus and still go to him with your pain. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hound and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them these things which Jesus had done. We see in this scene again the power where other people are saying, no, don't do it. It's going it's to stink. He's been dead four days. You know, they didn't have embalming like we have. Still in most parts of the world, um, you know, when someone passes away, you have, you know, most most countries have laws that you have 24 hours um, to, to put the body in the grave. But Jesus said, you know, Martha, it's like she believes, but yet there's a doubt in her as well about what, what's going to happen here. And Jesus says to her, did I not say that if you believe you will see the glory of God? 
they remove the stone. And, and Jesus, you know, he, he says that prayer because, again, he is using this for a purpose so that his disciples will have full understanding and validation that he is from the Father, that he is indeed the Christ. He is the anointed one, the Messiah who has been sent, that he is the Savior, that he is everything that he is supposed to be, the Son of Man and Son of God. And so he is saying that to them. He is praying out loud in that way as a testimony to those who are there to firm up their belief. That's the purpose of this because it's not too far from now that Jesus is going to go into uh, Jerusalem and you're going to have you know, his triumphal entry, entry into Jerusalem and you're going to have his last supper with his disciples, with his teaching. You're going to have his betrayal and his crucifixion. And so he is firming up the faith of his disciples in, in using the life and death and resurrection of Lazarus for their good to help them because he has a bigger spiritual purpose. And we know this because we don't have Lazarus here today with us. You know, the reality is Lazarus at some point later dies again and doesn't come out of the tomb. You know, it, it, that's the reality of it. And everybody has to weep again. And go through sorrow again. We usually don't talk about that part of the story. But that's a reality that we need to understand. And with that is great evidence that the spiritual, the eternal life, the the what what happens beyond here and now is is more the focus of Jesus than the here and now. The here and now is the opportunity to enter in into the to the kingdom of Jesus and enter into faith in Him and to be prepared to live forever and ever with Him. But can you imagine this? Many who were there, who were there, they had just gone. They hadn't gone to see a miracle. They hadn't gone to see the resurrection of Lazarus or to hear Jesus. They had just gone to comfort. They had just gone to comfort Mary and Martha. Their friends. And then they get surprised. You know, we would call it surprised by joy. You know, many people in life get surprised by joy. They're not necessarily going along looking for anything, but something happens, trouble happens, whatever happens, or they have this experience and they end up, whoa, today I met Jesus. They get surprised by joy. And so, for them, this is what happens. They, hear, they see this. They believe in Him. But now, listen to the contrast in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus had done. They're like, they're, like, they're, they're going to go tell on him and, and try to get him in trouble. Can you imagine? How hard does a heart have to be? To see Jesus raise someone from the dead and then go, 
you know, that's trouble instead of, wow, that's my king. Think of the contrast. It says, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees, verse 47, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. But not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now, let's get a couple things here that are really important. What was the motivation of the chief priests and Pharisees in wanting to stop Jesus? They said, you know, if we let him go, keep going... You know, basically all men, and by that, they're specifically talking about their their nation. All, all of the, the rest of the, of the Jewish people are all going to believe in him. And then the Romans will come. You know, basically they're concerned Jesus is going to start a rebellion against the Roman Empire. Then the Romans are going to come in, and they're going to take away our place, because they had a favorite place in the Roman Empire through their alliances and their acquiescing to Roman rule. And they're going to take away our place in our nation. The further implication of that is those who are leading, you know, the chief priests and the, you know, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, you know, they're going to be the ones that are going to be held most accountable if the Romans need to come in and settle business. And so they're afraid that they're going to lose their positions of power. They're going to lose their wealth. They could even lose their lives. So they're looking at it from the perspective, either Jesus has to go or there's a threat that we would have to go. And we don't want to go anywhere because we like our power and our money and our place and we like living. So Jesus has to go. And it's their lack of faith that says, well, Jesus, if we have actually the Messiah... If God is with us, who can be against us? They didn't have that mentality. You see, they weren't living according to the, the realities that they had already should have already read and have known about and knew intellectually but didn't have in their hearts concerning the power of God that they saw witnessed in the law and the prophets. Because the law and the prophets record God pulling out a people with no army and freeing them from slavery against the Egyptians. See, the Word of God recorded them taking possession of the land that they were in. The Word of God recorded the victories of people like Gideon and Samson and Deborah. See, the Word of God had the victories of King David. See, the Word of God had for them the stories of Daniel. 
And yet, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that God was more powerful than the Roman Empire. Their view of the situation is that the Roman Empire was more powerful and had more control over their lives than God Almighty. That the Roman Empire was more powerful than Yahweh. You see, they did not have blasphemy in their the doctrine that they spoke from their mouths. They would speak from their mouths, there is one true and living God. But what they lived according to their hearts was that the Roman army and the gods of the Romans were more powerful than Yahweh. That's what they lived out. That was their everyday reality that they actually believed as they walked the face of the earth day by day. That's what they believed. They would have written the right answer on the paper to the theological question, but their actions and their heart betray the reality of their hearts. They were faithless concerning the power of God. They did not believe. They did not believe what the scriptures had taught them. Then Caiaphas, as high priest, he is in a position that he now has to speak this this prophetic word. He doesn't. The scripture records he didn't say it of his own accord, of his own initiative, but he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and certainly he would do just that. But not just for them, as John records, but he would gather together into one the children of God. You know, we make all these divisions in the world and we can quickly forget that there's one human race. We can also tend to forget there's one people that the people of God, all who have, have faith in Jesus are formed into one people. And there to be there's to be no division or, or feeling of superiority. You see, one of the issues that the Jewish people they had, even you know, disciples of Jesus, and we see it later in the scriptures, is you know, they thought that they were better than the Gentiles. They viewed themselves as being just better people across the board than their Gentile neighbors. So for them to be able to look, to actually reach Gentiles, their mindset had to change. God had to change their view and their perspective, and they had to start viewing Gentiles as equal to them. They had to start viewing us as equal to them in order to be able to reach us. Now this word right here, we can take and make a very specific application to the American church. The American church can think that it ha- that it's better than or more important than or has a 
more important role to play than the church in other nations. And what I mean by that is, you know, again, being very specific in our definition, defining the church as true believers in in Jesus, not, you know, looking at it from an organizational level or from things that, um, you know, everything that calls itself church or calls itself Christianity. No, we're going much more narrower than that to the you know purity of those who believe in Jesus. And I know that may be offensive to some when I say, well, we're going to narrow that. But Jesus narrows it because he said that he is the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in him have eternal life. He doesn't say everybody who just says I'm such and such. In fact, he says there's going to be those who say, Lord, Lord, on that day. And, and, and Jesus said, he said, he said, I will say, depart from me because I never knew you. Never, ever knew you. So we're talking about the true church of Jesus around the world. And that's a really still a really huge group. But those who are true followers of Jesus in the United States of America are not more important than or better than or have a bigger role to play than followers of Jesus in other places. We as Americans and from not just North America, but specifically from the United States of America, have a national superiority. That that has been ingrained into our culture. Now, what's interesting, we have, you know, there's always pendulums, and so for for many now, the pendulum has swung, you know, so far the other direction. That um, you know, it's like, well, America is just just terrible. Okay, well, listen, folks. You know, like it's the worst nation in the world. Well, we're not the worst. We're not the best. We just are. And as followers of Jesus, we can't afford to have that nationalistic perspective invade our perceptions. And then we come in and say, well, we're the people who have everything figured out. And we're the ones who get to tell the rest of the world, get to tell the church the rest of the world how everything should be. And other nations, the church in other nations also has to have its identity rooted in Jesus that says we have Jesus and therefore there's no limit to our theological understanding and our ability to do good in the world. And so we have to see things through the eyes of Jesus, our King. And we need to do that from whichever culture that we happen to come from. And if you come from a feeling of superiority, we have to humble our face selves and put our faces on the ground and say, Lord, forgive me for feelings of superiority and from ideas of superiority. And if you grow up in a culture where, because of national reasons, you feel down, well, you also have to get on your, on your face before God and say, Lord, forgive us for not seeing us as you see us. And for not having our identity rooted in you and understanding that in Jesus, in you, 
All things are possible. So you see how that cuts both ways? Because here's my basic presupposition to this whole thing. Because you did not come to Jesus in a vacuum, you came to Jesus with an inherited culture that's from your nation, your city, your state, your family, from many other things, from Hollywood, from all these different things that have put part of themselves into you. And because of that, you see things wrong. Because of that, I see things wrong. I don't see as, as they are to God. I see they, they are through another lens. And it's Jesus who has to take the blinders off of us or those false lenses off of us and have us see it as He sees it. Because everything that's not of Jesus and the way He sees it is the wrong way to see it. The only truly right way to see anything is the way Jesus sees it. And how we see things correctly are when we're lined up and we see it as Jesus sees it. And hopefully as we mature in Christ, we see things less as how the United States of America sees it or how Iraq sees it or how China sees it or how Mexico sees it. But we see it as Jesus sees it. We don't see it as how Hollywood sees it. We see it how Jesus sees it. We don't see it how the university sees it. We see it how Jesus sees it. What's your, in, what's your greatest influence? And if I ask you today to write down on a piece of paper or the first name that comes to, you, to your mind, who's the smartest one who's ever lived? Who's the wisest one who's ever lived? If your first instinct isn't Jesus, then you're messed up in the head. If your first thought is like Solomon, Einstein, whatever scientist, whatever your, your best professor, whoever it is, if that's the first name, that's the smartest person I know, yourself, the first one that came to mind, me, whatever it is, if that name, the first name that didn't come to your mind was Jesus, then you're not seeing correctly from the beginning. That's true north is Jesus. And if you start off not looking at true north, you only have to be a degree or two off in a few years, you're going to be off by miles. You'll be off by miles. If you're just a degree or two off for the beginning. And so the scripture begs us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who is the true and wise king? His name is Jesus, and we better see it how he sees it. Because his opinion, his perspective, ultimately, at the end of the day, is the only one that matters. We have to stop thinking of, 
oh, well, we care about what all these other people think or this group of people thinks or what our nation thinks or what the world thinks or people at our school think or whatever thinks or at our work or our neighborhood. What does Jesus think? What's his perspective? Because it's the only one that matters. Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's one perspective that matters. And it's the perspective of Jesus. That's it. That's bottom line, folks. That's bottom line. His opinion matters. And that's it. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among them, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness in a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to the brothers as they stood in the temple, What do you mean? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So the, the religious leaders in the time of Jesus, they decided that the opinion of Jesus didn't matter. And I'm afraid, folks, there are so many people in this world who claim to be the representatives of God that don't care much about the opinion of Jesus when it comes to anything. And we have a case in many cases, just like in the days that Jesus talked about, and just as Jesus said, the blind leading the blind. These were the people who should have been most excited to see Jesus come. The chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they should have been the most joyous the Messiah had come and yet they sought to kill him. May it not be so for people who hear this message today. To reject him in one way or another. But to receive him as Savior and King as he is. May God help us to follow him fully. And we see the grace of of Jesus even in this even in this chapter. There's a lot of faith but there's a lot of failure throughout the lives of the disciples. We see faith and we also see failure. You know and and there's points and times we're gonna fail. There's points and times where I'm gonna fail. Where I have failed. And what do we do in those times? We have to go back to the, humble ourselves before the feet of Jesus and keep our eyes on Him and get up and keep walking, following Him where He wants us to walk. Like, that's what we got to do, folks. Whenever we mess it up, whenever we fail, whenever we fall, first at the feet of Jesus, confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we follow. We get up and we follow. And we keep following. 
And that keeps us from desperation. That keeps us from believing lies. But folks, everything in our lives, everything in the church, there's, you know, Jesus has his way and how we should do it. And even today, you know, when Jesus instructed us, he said, he told, we're going to see it, you know, we we see it at at the Last Supper where Jesus takes the bread and takes that, that cup and he says, do this and remembrance of me. And, you know, the fact that Jesus asked us to do it, you know, it, t- it takes out pretty much any question about whether I should or shouldn't do it. Other than my own heart, because he told me to take it a specific, you know, with a clean heart. So I need to, you know, we need to make sure we confess our sins and purify our hearts before we take the bread and the cup. But the simple fact of the matter is, Jesus said, do this. And so he wants me to take, and he wants us to take bread and cup and to remember him. Well, then, you know, it's like, well, of course we should do that. Why? It's really simple. You know, Jesus just said so. So Jesus tells you today to, to go do an act of kindness for your neighbor. Okay, well, I'm going to do that. Why? Jesus said so. Jesus said, you know, Jesus said, you know, he already told us to go in, into the world and make disciples. Well, um, well we got to go do that. Why? Because Jesus told us to. You know, a lot of things get real simple when you just go, well, what did Jesus tell me to do? Okay, I'm going to do that. Well, I just, I'm just going to do that. I'm going to try my best to do that. And, uh, and whenever Jesus wants to change how I'm doing that or where I'm doing that or when I'm doing that, whatever, like I'm, I'm going to be open to Jesus changing how, how, when, where, and all those things. But I'm just going to try to do what Jesus has asked me to do. Let's strive for that this morning as you take your bread and cup in your car or at home and take it today and go before the Lord and, and make sure we have a clean, pure heart before Him and then just say, Lord, um, I just want to do what You want me to do. I want to be at Your feet. I want to be in Your presence and in my life, even the rest of this day. I just want to do what You want me to do. And tomorrow when I get up, please give me the strength to do the same. Just, I just want to do what You want me to do. And like, let's, let's strive for that. And may God receive all the glory. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your love and your grace. Help us to do what you want us to do. Help us to love you, to follow you, to serve you. You are so good and awesome. And as we take the bread and cup today, we give you thanks. We give you thanks, dear Jesus, for your great sacrifice that was for us. Lord, we humbly submit ourselves to you and just want to love you and and be your servants. Thank you, Jesus, for your great love for us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.